is CBS Eye on the World. Here's John Batchelor. Ukraine crisis. I welcome Jeff McCausen, Colonel Jeff McCausen, United States Army, retired CBS News, Dickinson College, and the CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy to a report from the Wall Street Journal in these last hours. The correspondent is the veteran war reporter Yaroslav Trofimov. This is for the journal, and it's about a battle that's taken place in these last days, now with photographs in the Wall Street Journal. I recommend everyone stare at these pictures and say, what is this telling us? I have a retired armor commander here to ask those questions of. Jeff, the place is called Voznesensk, Ukraine. It's outside of Adasa in the south. And the report here is that a battle taking place over two days, a Russian, what appears to be a Russian armor column approaching the town, met by special operators and by volunteers. And one of the testifiers here is the mortician telling you where this is going. They Trofimov writes, Russian survivors of the Voznesensk battle left behind nearly 30 of their 43 vehicles, tanks, armored personnel carriers, multiple rocket launchers, trucks, as well as a downed MI-24 attack helicopter, according to Ukrainian officials. Russian forces retreated more than 40 miles to the southeast, where other Ukrainian units have continued pounding them. Some dispersed in nearby forests, where local officials said 10 soldiers have been captured. And this is the testimony of the commander of the Ukrainian Special Forces Recon Group in the area. His name is Vadim Dombrovsky. We didn't have a single tank against them, just rocket-propelled grenades, javelin missiles, and the help of artillery. The Russians didn't expect us to be so strong. It was a surprise for them. If they had taken our city, they would have cut off the whole south of Ukraine. I'll stop there, Jeff. What did you hear, Armor Commander, about what's going on inside the fog of war? Good evening to you. Good evening, John. I heard two things in particular. First of all, of course, is the importance of this operation. This is not a small-scale operation. <clears throat> because if you just translate that into where that is in Ukraine, you discover that's the coastline on the Black Sea. Clearly, the Russians have been trying to secure that coastline along the Black Sea and along Odessa. I mean, with Odessa and along the Sea of Azov up to Mariupol. And the seizure of Odessa might have concluded that, making uh, Ukraine a landlocked country. Second of all, this shocking, really, information that really light forces equipped with anti-tank systems can destroy an armored column, suggesting to me that the Russians were, A, caught by surprise, and B, some of the other things we've seen in evidence in other places, John, of really poorly executed tactics and operations by the Russians in terms of bunching vehicles, not providing lower lo local security, poor training, poor discipline, poor leadership. It's continuing on the battle. And then finally, of course, John, underscoring something you and I have talked about a number of times, that old saying by Napoleon that the moral is the physical as three is to one. And certainly the moral and the warrior spirit I would describe it as on the side of the Ukrainians by far. Listen to this, Jeff, about morale. Ukrainian officers estimated that some 100 Russian troops died in the battle, including those whose bodies were taken by retreating Russian troops or burned inside carbonized vehicles. As of Tuesday, the 11th, as, as of Tuesday this week, 11 dead Russian soldiers were in the railway car turned morgue with search parties looking for other bodies in nearby forests. Villagers buried them. They left their bodies, Jeff. 
What does that tell us about yeah, the, the confidence and the, the training of these troops and the discipline to leave bodies behind? Yeah, one of the things, one of the tenets of the U.S. military in terms of how we conduct ourselves is you don't leave a buddy behind. You don't leave the dead behind. And that just is indicative. Another benchmark, as far as I'm concerned, that suggests how poorly trained, disciplined and motivated these troops are. Also, John, considering the aggregate, you know, the DIA has said they estimate the Russians have had at least 5,000 killed in action. Ukrainians say 12,000. Obviously, the number is somewhere between those two. There's been over a thousand Russians taken prisoner. I got that directly from a Ukrainian source I have in Kiev just a little while ago. But the ratio of killed to wounded for us in combat was roughly about eight to one in Iraq and Afghanistan. There are some estimates in this war because of poor medical evacuation, quite frankly, Russian ratios are probably four wounded for every one killed because more of them are dying. So if you've got five or 6,000 killed in action, that also means you've got 25,000 wounded that the Russians have got to manage. And it seems their medical evacuation system is also inadequate. The mortician, the funeral director of this village, has arranged Russian bodies. There's a photograph in the Wall Street Journal. This is, this is harsh, but it's a fact. He's arranged the Russian bodies in a refrigerated railroad car. He's extremely angry. He'd like to drop them over Moscow. But there are moms back in Russia who don't know what's happened to their children. There are whole villages who, who want to mourn these young men. And nothing is being done. Jeff, there's no negotiation. There's no communication. What were the Russians expecting? Or, or was there just no anticipation whatsoever? The Ukrainians were supposed to run away. What can you measure from the one little village without a tank? Well, clearly, they expected to win this war in a couple of days and be in the midst of a celebration right now, in the midst of a new government in Kiev, uh, as the Russians really thought would happen. And instead of it taking three days, we're now into three weeks, and they still have not really secured a major Ukrainian city at all. And you're quite right about the mothers. You know, Russian mothers turned out in mass in the 1990s because of the carnage in Chechnya. And that had a significant influence on the Russian military and the Russian government, how they reacted. And we could see that also happening, I think, in the near future. It also is another reason why the Russians are so hard at work on their disinformation campaign, which is trying to convince the population at home that everything is going fine and walling them off, walling them off from any kind of external information, such as this story right here which would exacerbate that particular feeling, particularly amongst mothers and families. I've also gotten some information, John, to suggest the Russians, as part of that campaign to wall off people in Russia from information like that, may be intentionally targeting Western journalists who are producing stories like the one you've been describing. Jeff, let's go to the big city, Kiev. Both of us have had information from Kiev most recently about the preparation for the siege of Kiev underway. My understanding is that the shelling, the rocketing, happens at night to keep people awake. That's the intention. 4 or 5 a.m. was my report from the young man I spoke with. His name is Timothy Brick, and he's a professor at the School of Economics in, in Kiev, and he stayed with his friends. And they spend the night in the bomb shelter when they hear the incoming. However, he reports... There's plenty of food, plenty of food, because half this population has left. The power has never been interrupted. The Internet is on. Jeff, 
What is Russia thinking, allowing CBS News to talk to somebody inside Kiev who says we're fine? The hospitals are running. The private and public hospitals are open. Sometimes when the shelling starts, the people are too tired from working all day to get to the shelter. They just go to sleep. And we're looking at a power station that's been made into a fortress. They've got power. What is the plan here, Jeff? What can you what can you imagine the Russians are thinking? Kiev has a roads open to the south. Yeah, certainly I think the Russians think they'll grind this out over time. The, the mayor of, of Kiev has actually said there's he thinks they have two or three weeks of supplies. We know the infrastructure is getting damaged. What was a six hour drive from Kiev to Lviv is now a full day drive. The refugees on the road networks are also slowing the resupply. But in and around Kiev, you're right, the road networks are still open. They are getting supplied. And my colleague, who I spoke to over the Internet and did a Zoom call with within the hour, who was in Kiev, uh, told me that they've been able to do some local counteroffensive to push the Russians back in certain places. So, unfortunately, I think they're going to resort to what they're trying to do right now, continually grind it down, more artillery, rockets, missiles. And there is the threat, of course, that they could try to terrorize the population by, frankly, resorting to chemical weapons, as their Syrian proxies did against the Syrian people uh, a, num- a number of times. But Kiev, people have to keep in mind, if you try to do an analogy to World War II, if you want to talk about Stalingrad, where we saw a terrible street fighting during the Second World War, Kiev is larger than Stalingrad ever was, even with half of the population gone. Jeff, There are intangibles on a battlefield that make the difference. You have several to mention that NATO can provide without resorting to the the television debate about no fly zones. What do they need, Jeff? What can we deliver? Things that we need on the intangible side is real time intelligence. So any intelligence we can gain from our AWACS, JSTARS, which can operate over uh, NATO airspace, but still look into the Ukraine and provide very quickly targeting information or warning of incoming attack by the Russians would be invaluable to the Ukrainians. And that's a system and not necessarily a product you have to deliver. Second thing, of course, is more improved cyber defenses and some cyber offensive efforts to try to take out uh, Russian cyber networks. On the more material side, obviously things like uh, secure communications. Uh, The people I talk with in Ukraine talk about uh, more uh, mobility for their special operations troops who have been operating with deadly effect in ambushes against Russian units and actually taking out Russian leadership. They took out a Russian division commander within the last 24 hours. Medical evacuation is another thing that's been mentioned, as well as the things we hear so much about, John, which are anti-tank and air defense. The Biden administration and the president's remarks seem to allu- allude to this S-300, which will be a big benefit because it's a higher altitude air defense system. Uh, so the Russians can't operate at higher altitudes and, and therefore be somewhat invulnerable to the shorter air defense networks. And it's a system the Ukrainians are familiar with, so they could integrate it pretty quickly. Uh, the secure communications was mentioned to me as something that would help the Ukrainians com- uh, without being listened in on. Is that something that can be conveyed by truck or delivered what does it look like, Jeff? You had it in, yeah. in the Gulf. The, the, the Gulf you, you have radio radio communication devices that you can attach to a radio, which makes it secure so that so the transmission, if, even if it's picked up, is sort of garbled. And when it arrives on the other end, obviously, it's then detranslated. 
So you can use those secure communications to talk pretty freely without being compromised. But that doesn't require, that's just radio equipment uh, and could easily be boxed up, transported by ground. And you could train somebody to operate it in a matter of an hour or less and integrate it into any organization. Colonel Jeff McCausen, United States Army, retired, CBS News, Dickinson College, as well as the CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. When we come back, NATO. NATO is the question mark going forward. Years from now, NATO will be a major institution in Europe. What does that mean? What is going on? What is the preparation? And Mr. Zelensky's speech today, how did NATO hear it? This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batchelor. CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batson with Colonel Jeff McCausen. CBS News, U.S. Army retired. CBS News, Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. He's at Dickinson College, and we're observing from the outside the fog of war. But the fog of diplomacy dissipated a little bit in an address, virtual address, by President Zelensky to members of Congress in these last hours, asking again for a no-fly zone, asking again for major material help, which I believe has been granted and is on the way. However, how does NATO hear these remarks from a, non, a non-NATO state? How do the other members of the NATO uh, combination alliance hear what they need, what needs to be done in these next days and weeks facing an adversary that the adversary apparently has no limits? We're watching, the whole world is watching brutality by Russia. It's impossible for me to imagine at this point how to repair this damage. What does NATO hear, Jeff? You're a veteran of NATO. Is NATO feeling inadequate? Is NATO feeling uh, like it has a mission statement now? Are they ready to build a moat down the Baltics to the Black Sea? Well, I think NATO feels revived. I think NATO feels like since the end of the Soviet Union back in 1991, it's been kind of somewhat aimless, uh, had a mission in the 90s of obviously operations other than war in the Balkans, trying to end the wars in Bosnia uh, and Croatia. And then the invasion of Kosovo by the Serbs in a short war there that I was involved in in the White House. Now, Afghanistan was a NATO mission, but again, somewhat diffused and far from the European continent, which had been the focus of NATO. And now we're right back where we started in 1949 with not only the challenge of the Ukraine, but I think the recognition by NATO countries and the president said as well in his remarks today after President Zelensky's speech that Americans and our European allies have to understand this is a longer term conflict. Even if the war in the Ukraine was to end tomorrow, NATO must now realize that we turned the other cheek when they invaded Crimea. That cannot continue. And NATO now must stand ready keep the sanctions in place and stay united uh, in the face of this new threat posed by the Russian Federation. The no-fly zone, the president has made it clear, so has the officials at the DOD, that that would be a trigger that we do not at this point intend to use. That's not available. However, you've mentioned air defenses, the S-300 system. To my memory, that's a Russian system, but I'm presuming that the Ukrainians are tra- uh, trained to, to use it. Is that a red line, Jeff? Because we're talking about being able to bring down Russian aircraft flying in Russian airspace. Some of these, uh, these, these, 
warplanes are launching their missiles from Russian airspace, frightened of or fearful of or anxious about what uh, stingers? I don't know. It's very strange that you'd fly a circle around Russia and launch into Kharkiv. Yeah, it's, it's the safest way to do it, though, John, because obviously they are concerned about uh, Ukrainian air defense, which is ground air defense as, as well as a few aircraft. They may, because of the ineptitude of some of their operations, they may be worried about Russian air defense. How well are their air defense units operating in Ukraine able to identify friend from foe and might engage the aircraft as well? But the fact that they're launching so many of these weapons outside of Ukrainian airspace against targets underscores, frankly, the limited advantage that a no-fly zone might provide. Because even if you can secure that area the size of Texas over Ukraine, it doesn't stop them from launching weapons from airspace outside in Belarus or Russia proper. It doesn't stop them from launching cruise missiles from ground. It doesn't stop them from launching artillery. All those things are not precluded. But clearly, providing them S-300s, Ukrainians, which they can launch, rather than having a NATO or American pilot engaging a Russian aircraft, is something I think that is close to that red line but doesn't cross it in terms of that delicate balance between providing Ukraine the maximum military support by not becoming the United States and NATO a full belligerent in this war and raising the specter of potential escalation to the threat of the use of nuclear weapons. General question. You were part of the first Cold War. You were at NATO. You understood the threat of nuclear weapons. You understood all the apocalyptic language. Are we in a second Cold War? What is the buzz, Jeff? What do you hear? We have about a minute. I think we are in a second Cold War. I think, John, we may be rapidly approaching the most significant nuclear crisis we've had since the Cuban Missile Crisis in terms of the potential threat that we have of the use of such weapons. Vladimir Putin, as he sees his offensive bogged down, if he's going to double down, he's going to double down, I fear, and either thinking about using chemical weapons or perhaps a tactical nuclear weapon. And Russian military doctrine talks about escalating to de-escalate by the use of such systems, and they've been discussing that for the last decade. Colonel Jeff McCausen, United States Army, retired. Yes, it's impossible to imagine a nuclear weapon, but try this. How about a pandemic that beggars the earth, leading to a war in Europe. How about not believing that? Jeff McCausen at Dickinson College, CBS News, and Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. I'm John Bash. You're listening to CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. This is CBS Eye on the World. Here's John Batchelor. Ukraine crisis. George Friedman is the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, writing about his childhood when he was a young man standing next to an M60 armored fighting vehicle in Pennsylvania once upon a time and lessons learned about what we're witnessing in Ukraine now, especially the ambition of the Russian aggressor to use tanks to overwhelm large cities filled with people who can push back. George, a very good evening to you. Lesson from the M60. This was deep in the Cold War. It was 1972. And we had a lot of fighting ahead of us. I recall, because I visited Germany, Schweinfurt at the time, where they also had those giant tanks with jet engines who would exercise now and again at the Fulda Gap, the the rainy Fulda Gap. And I thought, what can conquer this? So what was then and what is now? What has happened in between? Good evening to you, George. 
Good evening. Well, what has happened between then and now is something called the AT3 SAGR, which is a fancy NATO designation for a Russian anti-tank system that first appeared in 1973 in the Arab-Israeli War. And it was discovered that the tank, which had been designed to protect the infantry, was now subject to the infantry. These were uh, anti-tank systems uh, fired by a team that could be guided to the target optically. So somebody would be using a telescope, if you will, looking at the tank, and it couldn't miss. It was a 80% hit kill. One of the things that happened was the brigade of uh, Israeli tanks came down a road and was devastated. And what was discovered then was the tank, rather than being the protector of infantry, had to be protected by infantry. They had to go in ahead and clear out the infantry. And at that moment, the tank's viability came into question. And this is why at the beginning of the war in uh, Ukraine, the British sent javelins. Javelins are a upgraded modern anti-tank weapon that attacks the tank from the top where its armor is the weakest. And what's going on there is, you know, a kind of struggle between uh, the tank that's been massed by the Russians, anti-tank weapon systems, and the desperate need for oil, for energy, for POL, petroleum oil and lubricants. How do you get it to these tanks uh, in this sort of thing? So the tanks, I think, were Putin's nostalgia. He, like me, stood at the Fulda Gap, looked at the other side and said, we will send our T-72s in there. And he did. And it's not working. The saying in the Cold War was sometimes quantity is quality. And I think they said it about the number of tanks. There was some incredible number that were arrayed on the East German side of the Fulda Gap, stretching all the way back. This is Warsaw Pact days. And the thinking of the Soviet general staff was we will overwhelm them and reach Paris. That was that was what we were told. Has that general staff come up to date? Can you tell, George, whether they were telling Putin that there are there are infantry weapons now that can defeat us at random. Well, in the Cold War, that was said, but only by idiots. The reason is that a tank needs oil. It needs petroleum. It has to be taken care of. As an armored column moves forward, the task of getting the fuel to them is harder and harder. And remember that a tank, rule of thumb, goes a half a mile goes a half a mile on one gallon of gas, of fuel. So the more tanks you have, the more fuel you have to deliver. The more fuel you have to deliver, the harder it is. And the more the enemy doesn't attack the tanks, it attacks the fuel. So in the World War II sense, everybody kind of knew that if quantity defeats quality, then you'd better move fast because you're going to run out of fuel on the way there. You will note that the Russians never attacked because of this problem. If they could have, they would have. We come to a weapon that is effective, that is up to date, and that surprisingly now was also not taken into account, according to reports, at the Kremlin. It's the financial weapon, the green eye shade, the bookkeepers. What's happened, George? The Russians went into the war expecting to be able to split NATO, expecting that Germany, dependent on fuel, natural gas or them, uh, would not join into the system. 
and that NATO would be ineffective. So the first thing that happened was the surprise. The Germans tried to weasel out of the war at first, had a meeting in Washington and came back in full bore. Okay. So the first thing that happened is this economic weapon wouldn't work if we didn't have this huge coalition participating in it. The Japanese are part of it. Everybody is part of it. We held NATO together, and that was a critical thing. And that Putin didn't estimate. And the second thing is, I don't think the Russians fully understood the power of the American dollar. The power is this. World trade is carried out in dollars. You really don't want a 10-year contract in yuan. Uh, he would like it in dollars, and the thank you delivered, please. And so the Russians did not understand how vulnerable they were, not because they didn't have people to understand it. They did understand it. They just thought that the alliance wouldn't hold together, that you had to have everybody cooperating on this, and they wouldn't. And the Germans are the fourth largest economy in the world. The Japanese are the third largest economy in the world. And if they didn't play, and I think that's where the Russians went wrong. I think their intelligence was wrong on Germany and a lot of other countries. That was a failure point. The Russian economy is sagging at the micro level, not only at the macro level. The unemployment is rising quickly. Is that a concern for the Kremlin, that what we have here is a country that is suddenly facing being beggared by unknown forces that are denying facts? Well, I would put it this way. They began weak. They have a GDP of about $1.3 trillion compared to $22 trillion for the Americans. They have a GDP behind that of Brazil. Brazil is a country, but they are not a superpower in the conventional sense. They really never have been. And the problem they have is they don't have the fat to be able to burn during this conflict. They are thin and the economy is fragmented. And right now, Putin is in the position that he's got to go ahead and try to force some sort of settlement in Ukraine. If he goes through all of this, all this death, all this misery, and he capitulates because of economic problems, he has personal problems. So he's trying to bring this to a halt. Everybody will forget the economic problems. But if he doesn't bring it to a halt satisfactorily, he's got problems. The tank is not effective. The money weapon is effective against Putin. We're told that the encirclement of Kiev is the ambition. Is that the plan right now? Take Kiev and bargain and negotiate from there? Well, there's no harder battle than for a city. Uh, the Russians lost hundreds of thousands in trying to take Berlin at the end of the war where the Germans are weak. When you're fighting in a city, you know every alley, every roof where you could have a ambush. You know the battlefield. The guy coming in doesn't know it, and he has to move slowly and very carefully, and he is a target. So going into a city is something an army does not want to do. Tanks are not particularly useful in the city because they got walls on either side, and they're just not going to be able to get the distance they need. So what the Russians are trying to do is the standard thing of encircle Kiev and starve it to death. But they have not had a full encirclement. Uh, it's hard to encircle a big city. It takes a lot of force. And the, what appears to be the case is that the Ukrainians have movement in and out of the city. So, in fact, their ability to take the city is very much in doubt. Their ability to starve it out, more likely, but even that's not certain. 
And all those tanks sitting outside are highly vulnerable to the Javelin missiles. George Friedman is the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, a subscription site. I recommend it. This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Bach. I'm John Batchelor. Ukraine crisis in Earth orbit. David Livingston, Dr. Space is here. This is Hotel Mars, episode N. And we are gripped by this headline. Canadian radar satellites to help Ukraine fight off Russian invasion. I welcome the author of the report, Michael Wall. Mike Wall is a senior writer at Space.com. He's also the author, most recently, of Out There. A Scientific Guide to Alien Life, Antimatter, and Human Space Travel for the Cosmically Curious. I am earthbound curious, Michael, about this radar satellite that the Canadian government has embraced or passed on or made available to Ukraine. How does it work? What is, what is the kind of technology it can offer Ukraine in a, a dogfight with an aggressor? Good evening to you. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Happy to be here. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty important because actually radar satellites are, are great at peering through clouds, you know, and they can operate at, 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 at night as well. So they can get like a 24 hour kind of view of what's going on on the ground, which is something that folks who are fighting a war desperately need. Um, and so what, the, what this recent agreement is basically like the Canadian government has sort of given permission to a company that, that is the builder of some of these radar satellites, Canadian radar satellites can fly over protected areas of, of Ukraine and, and get imagery and share them with you and share that imagery with the Ukrainian government. And, um, that like information will hopefully be used to sort of generate intelligence reports and like help the Ukrainian government fight off the invasion. This is a private company and it needed the government's permission because these are sensitive matters because the government paid for it. Why is that, Michael? Well, it's they're they're like radar satellites that were built by this private company operated by the Canadian Space Agency. So there are all these inner yeah, yeah kind of interlocking agreements and 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 also, yeah, I mean, satellite operation is kind of a tricky thing, like where you're flying over, what you're taking pictures of can be like pretty sensitive. So you you generally need agreements to kind of work out what you're doing so you don't spark any incidents on the ground. And this is just laying laying the groundwork for for the operation of these satellites over Ukraine and like getting information to the people on the ground who actually need it. Uh, my colleague and co-host and co-pilot, David Livingston of the Space Show, Dr. Space is here. David, you're in Earth orbit watching through the clouds. Good evening to you. Uh, good evening. Uh, you know, when when Musk was talking about Starlink, he was talking about uh, upgrading programming to resist their jamming and some other things. Are you hearing anything about jamming efforts of the Canadian satellites? I, I have not heard about jamming efforts. I, it's pretty likely that that is going on. That I mean, satellite jamming is something that kind of happens a lot, and we just don't hear about it a lot because because satellite operators don't want to let the aggressors know if they're making progress, and they don't want to reveal any vulnerabilities in their craft. So you don't hear about it as much as it's happening. That's for sure. I, I would imagine that that's going on with with the radar satellites, maybe with the Starlink craft. And that's that's a good point, actually. That that's another that's another realm where sort of satellites are 
are trying to help out. I mean, like the infrastructure has been demolished throughout a lot of Ukraine and, and included in that infrastructure is the communications infrastructure. And so it's so actually SpaceX has, has sent a lot of terminals for, for, for their Starlink internet system, which is providing broadband service like to Ukraine. And it's, it's being used by the Ukrainian government, apparently, and the Ukrainian people. So that, that's another way. That's another thing that we could talk about, about how kind of satellites are, are, like helping in, in this war effort. I testify to that, Michael. I had a conversation with a professor of the School of Economics in central Kiev uh, within these last hours. His name is Timothy Breek. And I asked him about Starlink because it had made a lot of news here. And he said, yes, he has colleagues who are using it and mm-hmm. that it works fine. Although his Internet was excellent without Starlink. It is a mystery of this war. The power is still on in Kiev and the Internet still working in throughout Ukraine. It's odd business. But MDA, let's give credit to MDA. All mm-hmm. stories get to be one. I noticed that MDA's uh, radar sat constellation was launched by SpaceX in 2019. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. as if Musk has been preparing for this war. But it also does optical. Is that correct, Michael? It can take optical uh, pictures. And yeah, and there, there, there are a bunch of other optical satellites that are doing similar work that, that we should discuss too, because, and, and a lot of those are being run by, by American companies. I mean, Maxar Technologies, Planet Labs, there, there are other companies, Black Sky are, are also doing things like taking pictures of what's going on in, in like Ukraine and, and sort of documenting what's happening. And they're actually publishing the, like a lot of these photos for free on, on Twitter and they're sending them to reporters such as me so we can write about them and show them to the world. And that's kind of, that's having a real impact because it's countering some of the Russian propaganda about they're only hitting military operations. They're only hitting military buildings. But a lot of these satellite photos and sort of optical light taken by, by these private American companies are showing like bombed out hospitals, bombed out shopping malls and stuff like that. So that, that's another big aspect of this war as well. I want to clarify MDA is radar capability. The other yes. is Maxar is optical as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so what we were talking about initially with, with the radar sets, yeah, that's, and, and like the Canadian agreement, that's like radar technology. So those are appearing through clouds, like watching at, at night, which is extremely valuable. But when, when the clouds part and, and during the day, optical light satellites are, are also looking down to, to get views in like visible light that, that our eyes can see. And a lot of those, I mean, there, there are a bunch of those satellites, but, but a lot of the ones making some of the most progress and sort of getting information to the world about the war are operated by by a few private American companies that are making a lot of their imagery freely available. So that's something that's that's making a difference. David? MDA has a somewhat of a colorful history, and not too many years ago it absorbed Lorraine, which was an American satellite company, you know, over in the valley. Do you know if radar satellite was Lorraine technology that MDA got, or is this all Canadian technology? Yeah, I'm, I like I don't know. I I don't know enough about the inner workings of, of MDA. I mean, I know they're they're a very prominent and long yeah like long lived Canadian aerospace technology company. They've done a lot of different stuff. They used to be like McDonald Detweiler and Associates, like I believe, and I think they're involved with with the Canada Arm technology for the on the International Space Station. They're they're a very accomplished group that has done a lot of really good space stuff over the years. So it's not a surprise that sort of radar sat is is prominent and that they're like doing a lot of good work in this realm too. Michael, you're in San Francisco and my reading of this war is that San Francisco is in the fight. All of the all of the platforms are either being canceled or being pro, uh, providing information for the combat zone or being canceled in Russia. 
Is your sense that San Francisco is uh, is doing something extraordinary or is this something that you've seen before, the participation of all these private enterprises? No, I think, I mean, like we're a city that tends to lead in a lot of these things, I think, but I don't think it's it's like unique by any sense. You know, I think this is, there are a lot of people concerned about this war, obviously for humanitarian reasons, for, for geopolitical reasons. And yeah, I mean, I think you're like, you're seeing it around the world. You're seeing a lot of, of resistance by a bunch of different companies, a bunch of different, just like sort of government entities that are trying to tell, to tell Russia this sort of aggression is not going to be tolerated, or at least they're going to try to do our best to, to rein it in a little bit. Right. I mean, like, like we do what we can. David, we have less than a minute. I'm curious if you know if the radar tech is the same being used in advanced avionics to see through clouds and fog uh, in airliners and, and airplanes so that they can still function in that kind of weather. It would it would be a guess. I, I would imagine it's it's similar. I mean, radar technology. It's we've we've had it since like before World War Two or right around World War Two. Um, I think it's it's the same in principle, but like I'd imagine there are, there are some significant tweaks that you have to make to get things to operate from a satellite's altitude as opposed to being being in, in the cockpit of a plane. But yeah, I'm 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 not enough of an expert in those technical matters to really speculate much more than that. Canada's in the fight. MDA technology, MDA, SAR technology in the fight. Governor, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is headed to the meeting in Brussels next week of all NATO powers. Michael Wall of Space.com. David Livingston, Dr. Space of the Space Show. This is Hotel Mars, episode N. I'm John Batch. You're listening to CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batchelor. The default of Russian debt. The Financial Times. The West has all but declared economic warfare on Russia in response to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Whether or not Russia manages to make interest payments on its dollar debt, coupon payments on two bonds due right now, did not arrive. There is a 30-day grace period. The country is already experiencing all the consequences of of a default. The ruble has collapsed. The government and most of its businesses are excluded from borrowing. A deep recession is looming, is upon us. The failure to pay bond coupons on time is ultimately just another symptom of the damage the Kremlin has wrought. Michael Bernstam of the Hoover Institution, former central banker in Russia, now an economist at Stanford University's Hoover teaching me these last weeks about this very effective heavy weapon, weapon of mass destruction called debt, called the Russian Central Bank, having its foreign reserves frozen because it they were dollar or yen or Swiss dollar or pound or euro denominated at the Federal Reserve or other vaults on a digital connection that could be severed and was. So now we come to debt day. Michael, here it is. The Russians have not paid on two bonds. We can presume this will follow. What does that mean about Russia's ability to maintain its economy? Good evening to you. Good evening to you. And let's get into real time. We are at the moment of great mystery because uh, the United States Treasury made an exception until the end of June or no, until the 25th of May, uh, an exception there that 
the Russian foreign exchange reserves frozen on the computers of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York can be used to pay the debt. The Russians gave an order to their correspondent uh, bank somewhere in the U.S. We don't know which bank to appeal or to apply to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York through the authorized dealers to receive this money and to pay it to the investors whom they own. The amount is tiny, tiny, $117 million of the entire Russian sovereign debt of uh, $70 billion. So it's less than less than uh, 0.2 of 1% of the total debt. But it didn't go through. Why it didn't go through, I don't know. And the investor said they have not received it, so Russia is in default, although legally they are allowed to pay that debt. By the end of March, they have to pay much more, 60, $650 billion million dollars, that money they don't have. Maybe they will be allowed to pay. So whether or not they're in default at this moment is a bit of a mystery. What does default mean for their ability to do business with anybody? Can they carry on trade with uh, countries that are not condemning them or that want to exchange something for their oil? Is there an economy that they can still maintain? Uh, they are given an exception uh, to uh, sell uh, oil and natural gas because Europe needs it and Europe uh, is dependent 30 to 40 percent on Russia as a source of energy. Apart from that, practically nothing. There was a funny thing uh, in the last few days. They banned export to their friendly countries of Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, their neighboring countries, former Soviet Union, Armenia. They banned exports of wheat and corn because they hope to sell it somewhere for dollars and euros somewhere in the Middle East, maybe to China. So they're now punishing their friendliest friends to in order to sell to their enemies, they don't mind because they want to sell it somewhere they need the cash desperately. Now they're debating another issue, whether to ban their exports of nickel and aluminum because those are cash cows. Those make them a lot of money. And they say, we wish, we wish to punish the West. They depend on those exports. We cannot afford it. We need the money. So principles aside, they continue to trade whoever buys from them. Two weeks ago and then one week ago, you reported that China was balking at providing a workaround for Moscow. Is that still happening? Still happening. And China is not uh, buying the uh, uh, additional oil from them. And China is now working on long-term contracts. So China is not paying. The Russians are fulfilling their contracts. They are sending oil without being paid. And China is now, uh, the Chinese banks are totally, they join the sanctions. The Chinese government is talking that it will support Russia. Recently, very interesting, in the last few days, the Russian government asked for China not only for financial aid, it asked for military aid, because they don't have spare parts for their military equipment. China didn't give them anything. What we have then is an economy that is in collapse. I I report at the small level artisans who can't use Instagram to connect to their 
connect to their customers or stores shutting all across Moscow, 62,000 people out of work for McDonald's in all of Russia. They're being paid momentarily because Mos- because the McDonald's has decided to continue their payment, though they can't work. But that is not true everywhere. Does this describe an economy that's seized up, banks closing, people without paychecks, uh, the social media platforms blanked out? Or is this something that they can stall for weeks or months, Michael? It all comes in stages and it's getting worse and worse. The first effects are relatively mild. Well, inflation will increase to 10% a year. Unemployment is going to increase to 6 or 7%, which is a lot for them. But now there is a, a total ban on foreign exchange. Effectively, the uh, convertibility is uh, gone. So people cannot get dollars, people cannot get euros, but companies, corporations still demand dollars and euros for domestic trade. So this spills over to the supply chains. The supply chains will start to break down. Uh, the run on banks. Now the central bank is desperate to provide li- ruble liquidity. Ruble liquidity for banks, they can print as many rubles as they want. But the banks are afraid that uh, there is a run on banks and uh, people just are withdrawing their cash from the banks because they're afraid the banks will collapse. The next stage is the supply chains. So there will be some interruptions uh, over the supply chains. And since that's a big point, since the supply chains are geographically distributed differently in Russia uh, because uh, the oil and natural gas and metals are all in eastern Russia, in Siberia. So there will be some regional break up eventually in the long run because some regions are exporting and they have to support the entire country and this will create some tension. Three weeks ago when we first spoke upon the occasion of your article at The Hill, you identified these waves that are happening now. And I didn't ask for a timeline then because it all seemed quite fantastic to me, but it's real now. It's right in front of us. I'm looking at the Financial Times reporting what you said was going to happen. The Kremlin sees this. Do they have a timeline in their minds how long they can stall, not having an income, people don't accept their their checks, and they're telling the public that 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 everything's stable when it's not, when they can see the unemployment? Is there is there a comparable experience in Russia to, uh, at this moment? We have just 30 seconds, Michael. There is no comparable experience anywhere in the world th- since uh, for the time immemorial. That is an answer. Michael Bernstam of the Hoover Institution uh, identifying the failure of the Russian economy right in front of us. I'm John Batchelor. You're listening to CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. 